1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, that's our passage this morning. As we saw last week in chapter 2, Paul was addressing concerns that he had within the Ephesian church. There were primarily three of them. The first one was that some of the men were not getting along. There was anger and some wrath apparently, and so Paul called on them to pray as part of his solution to that, and to pray for all men and, and uh, to pray for leaders in authority, especially, which was from the week before. Another concern that Paul had with the church at Ephesus was the extravagant dress and behavior of some of the women. We, we talked a little bit about how within, especially royalty circles, they would like to do up their hair at these towering what do you call edifices or whatever, you know, with all the jewelry and ornaments in their tall hair. And I even read to you a passage from an ancient historian who described those as these tall, towering edifices on the top of their head. And, and not only that, but their behavior was inappropriate within the context of the church. And apparently some of the church were sort of taking those ideals on and it became a disruption. As we talked a little bit about with coming to what we call church, and Paul was referring to their gatherings when they were coming together to worship and, and that. And so that would be the equivalent of our church service here. So we talked about the appropriate dress. You know, that when we come here, it's not to impress others, and, you know, so dress ought to just be appropriate, but also behavior, because the emphasis last week wasn't just on their physical dress, but on demeanor and behavior, and it should be modest. And um, so that was the second concern that Paul had. The third concern was over some of the behavior of the women when it came to teaching and authority. And as you remember, I kind of avoided that subject last week only because I didn't feel as I would have enough time to adequately get into the passage and sort of explain some things. Um, so we reserve that for this week. So we're going to dive into that. So this is Paul's third concern, and it has to do with authority structure in the church and, and uh, women teaching. And if you've read ahead, and I know Sydney had mentioned she had read through this and was making her head spin a little bit. And um, I imagine there's probably some questions. You may wonder, what does it mean for women to stay church or stay quiet in church? Paul addresses that. Um, why can't women teach men or serve as elders might be another question you might have. Um, what does Paul mean by women will be saved by childbearing? That's probably a troublesome one for some folks. Um, and then how does it apply to single women or those who don't have kids? There's all these questions that you know, revolve around this. And I'll be real frank, this is a controversial, difficult passage for a lot of people. It is a passage that um, oftentimes gets misinterpreted, misused, mistreated. I know some who have used this passage to literally say that women should never open their mouth in church, should never have a position of any kind, even outside the church, that involves any type of authority, so women CEOs or anything else, completely forbidden by the scriptures. There are some who use this passage for purposes like that. And then the opposite extreme are some that say, oh, no, 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 everything in this passage was Paul's opinion, or it's just based on culture, has nothing to do with today, none of this applies to today. We can just sort of move along. Don't have to spend much time there. So you find interpretations all over the spectrum on this passage, which is why I call it a controversial passage, or why it's a difficult passage to interpret. We're going to try to answer some of these questions today. We're going to dive into the passage here. And really, from a simplistic standpoint, the outline is really, really simple. Paul basically makes two statements, two instructions that he gives to women within the Ephesians church. Very simple. But then... He goes on and he explains three different, I'll say, supporting reasons why he makes those two statements or instructions about women. So we get the two instructions that he provides to women, and then three reasons to support those instructions. So that's going to be our outline for today. The first instruction is actually found in verse 11. Let's go ahead and we'll dive into that. 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. A woman must receive, or quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now the context of this verse, we have to keep in mind, and this is important, is the local church gathering. He's talking about when they come together for worship, instruction, fellowship. So that's the context there. Paul isn't necessarily talking about other contexts. I'm not saying that it doesn't apply to some degree, but it's extremely important that we remember that Paul is specifically talking about the local church body when they come together in a formal sense. So for our purposes, we would say 
what we do here. Or maybe what we do when we come together for a gathering like we did last night. That is a gathering of the corporate body and there are certain rules that are to be in effect when we do that. And so Paul is primarily addressing that and he says that it has to do with receiving instruction. If you go back to verse 11, it says a woman must quietly receive instruction. So the, the context here is how are women to behave when receiving instruction, when the church comes together as a body. And again, I would say that applies specifically to the local body, but we also have contexts where we come together as a church body that isn't necessarily the local church, but it is a gathering or a body in a formal sense of the body of Christ. So I would say something like this even applies in many respects to when... Christians gather together in a formal sense, specifically for teaching and learning and instruction. Okay? And so, that's what the context is here. Paul's going to address receiving instruction in the context of a body of believers coming together, primarily the local church, but it may extend to other avenues. So what's the requirement? Paul lays out two requirements when it comes, or two instructions now, to this. The first one here is that women are to receive this instruction, he says, quietly. The word is used only four times in the New Testament. And while it can refer to silence, literally being quiet, in fact, it's used that way in Acts chapter 22, the other three times it's used, it's used primarily to refer to a state of calmness or quietness in that respect. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out really what that means. If I say that that individual's got a quiet and calm personality, it doesn't mean that they never open up their mouth. It means that their demeanor is one that is quiet, non-disruptive, very gentle in spirit, calm in the way that they respond and the way that they behave. And so I believe that Paul is using the word in that regard here, and part of that is because of what we're going to see in a few minutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The context doesn't necessarily support that Paul is saying they have to shut up. They can't speak. Zip it. Zip. Zip. Okay? So... It's really probably a reference here to more the idea of a quiet demeanor, and we'll see support for that in the rest of the scriptures. And again, scripture interprets scripture. That's what we know. So we always have to turn to other places to help us define how words are being used. And again, in this passage, the best interpretation of that is probably a quiet and and calm demeanor. Now, the second requirement, Paul says here, is that they're to learn or to receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Well, that word can refer to um, obedience, but more often than not, it's this idea of being submissive to authority. And so, when it's used here, Paul is likely referring to being submissive to something within this structure that takes place here. And notice he uses this word entire, which means complete submissiveness. So the question is, what are women to be submissive to here? We can't argue that Paul isn't referring to submissiveness. In fact, even those who look at this passage and say it really doesn't apply today admit that it's about submissiveness, submitting oneself to authority, but they say it doesn't apply today. So there's no argument as to what submissive really means here. It means to recognize authority and to submit to that authority. But the context here isn't super clear on exactly what what they're to be submissive to. So one possibility is that they're being submissive to the teaching, to what's being taught. Another possibility is that they're to be submissive to the one's teaching. A third possibility is that they're to be submissive to their husbands. You'll see that all of these are kind of in play here when we look at another passage in a few minutes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Especially the idea of simply being submissive to the authority within the church structure there, but also submissiveness to their husbands. And those are all going to come into play here because what Paul has in mind here, he's not trying to identify, be submissive specifically to your husband, be submissive specifically to the teaching, be submissive specifically to a pastor or an elder, but rather a general sense that women are to be in a submissive role to what's happening in that local church. So it's, it's sort of overarching in many respects, which is why Paul isn't more specific here in identifying specifically. He could have said, wives, be submissive to your husbands, like he does in Ephesians and in Colossians. But he leaves it much more open-ended here, because again, it's a general sense and the general behavior of women needing to be in a submissive role 
within the church. Now, that doesn't mean men don't submit. We're told as well. In fact, when women are told to submit to their husbands, by Paul in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, it comes on the tail end of him him telling the church, be submissive one to another, which applies to everyone in many respects. And that's part of the problem with this passage is people will see this, be submissive, and they go, oh, what about men? It's not about men in this case. Paul has a problem with what's happening with women here. And apparently some of the women were not being in a submissive nature within the church for whatever Paul is going to address, and we'll see that again here. But again, it's overarching in that respect. So, two questions come up in my mind as I read that very first challenge that Paul provides. The first is, what prompted Paul to give that instruction? Paul doesn't just write because he feels like scribbling down something. There's usually a reason why Paul writes. The epistles are almost all written because Paul is trying to address issues within those local bodies. So something prompted Paul to write this. Second question I have is, was it a cultural thing? Or is it something that applies to us today? In other words, was Paul saying that women were to receive instruction in entire submissiveness and to be quiet, have a calm, quiet spirit, simply because it was a cultural thing? Or is there something else going on? And so we're going to try to identify those and look at those today. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because, as I mentioned, Scripture interprets Scripture. There's another passage that's very similar to this that actually provides a little bit more context to maybe what was going on. The church at Corinth was very similar to the church at Ephesus. Both of them were Gentile-based churches. Both of them were highly influenced by Greek culture. So there's some similarities between what was happening at Corinth and what was happening at Ephesus. So the fact that Paul addresses a very similar issue at Corinth and gives us more details is going to help us to understand what he's talking about in 1 Timothy here with the church that was at Ephesus. Now, let me kind of lay some groundwork here. There were some things happening at the Corinthian church. There was a lot of confusion during the church service. There was some infighting. There was some bickering. There were lawsuits, we learn in chapter 5, between each other. They were, you know, abusing the Lord's Supper in some respects, um, kind of showing up just to pig out on the food and not really celebrating the Lord's Supper as it should be celebrated. There was issues with eating meat in the marketplace where they were just exercising their liberties and they don't really care about how that might have affected somebody else. Plus, Paul spends three chapters on dealing with the church service and the abuse of spiritual gifts during that time of gathering. He spends three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, just addressing the confusion that was taking place during their time of gathering because of the way they were abusing the spiritual gifts. And two critical issues had to do with the speaking in tongues and prophets speaking. And part of what was happening there was that everybody was seeming to speak in tongues, all babbling on, without interpretation, and everything else causing confusion. And Paul even describes that when an unbeliever comes in and he sees that, he's just going to be out of his mind. He's going to be confused because of the disorder. A second major issue was that women within the church were prophesying and praying with their heads uncovered. Now the reason that was a problem was because in that culture and society, women didn't uncover their heads in public. In fact, those that did uncover their heads were associated oftentimes with adultery because one of the penalties for adultery was to shave the head. And so women in the Corinthian church were coming in and they were uncovering their heads probably because of their newfound freedom in Christ uncovering their heads, and they were standing up, and they were praying publicly and prophesying publicly with their heads uncovered. And within that culture, that would have been seen as an immoral woman. And so it was causing confusion within the church. And so Paul is trying to address those issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 here. So we not only have people babbling on in tongues, confusing one another, but... Prophets who also, another major issue is prophets were speaking over each other. Paul had to limit that and say only three prophets can speak. And you all have to do it one at a time. And if you're talking, another prophet gets something from God and he wants to talk. You've got to shut up and sit down let him talk. So they were talking over each other, causing confusion. And women were standing up, praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered in a culture where that was considered taboo. We may or may not agree with that. Women in our culture don't cover their heads. So an equivalent in our culture might be a woman that gets up and dresses in a way that looks like an adulterous woman or a streetwalker or anything, whatever you want to call it. Certainly we would say, well, that's not appropriate. 
dress in a church gathering. You know, and we would have a problem with the culture, wouldn't we? The same thing in their day. So that's what Paul is dealing with. So he provides these instructions in chapter 14, starting in verse 26. Let's go ahead and read this to see what Paul has to say about it. Starting in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So everything in the church is to be done for edification, to edify the body, he says. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or three at most, each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So what happened here was when the prophets would stand up to speak, they would be allowed to give the prophecy, the declaration that God would make, and they had to do it one at a time. But after they would do that, then the other prophets would discuss and debate it, would talk about it. Likely what they were doing was comparing what was said to what they found in the scriptures to ensure that what the prophet was saying was true and right. So one way to say it would be, much like today we stand up and preach, if we preach, we could give you an opportunity then to discuss and to evaluate what's being said. Now that would be extremely important in Paul's day because, first off, they didn't have the written word like we do. They had the Old Testament, but not everybody had a copy of the Old Testament either. Part of what God was doing at that time was providing new revelation to the church. And so he would do that through the prophets. He would do that through Paul and Peter and others, through their writings as well. And so when a prophet would stand up, moved by God to declare something, it would be evaluated by the other prophets in the church. And so there was a time of discussion that would happen after the giving of prophecy. And so Paul says, to go back to the passage there, let two or, pro- two or three prophets speak, verse 29, and let the others then pass judgment, discuss it, evaluate it. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So this is their time of learning and education. Prophets are speaking, they're evaluating it. It's a time of teaching and instruction. Much like what's happening right now with what we're doing. It's the way that they learned. Okay? Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of all the saints. In other words, this is what we do in all the churches. This is the rule in all the churches now. Now look at what he does. All of a sudden now, out of the blue, he addresses women specifically. He says in verse 34, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, very similar language to what Paul says to the Ephesians, just as the law also says. If they're to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So what Paul does here is something very similar to what he does in the book of Ephesians, and we'll go back there in a little bit. But notice that he says to the women that they're to keep silent in the church, That use of silent there probably is the idea of not speaking because Paul goes on and says they are not permitted to speak. Now, what's interesting about this is Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that women were prophesying and praying publicly in the church. Paul didn't have a problem with that. He doesn't confront that. What he says is the problem is when they did that, they were doing it with their heads uncovered. So they were doing it in a manner that was improper, but Paul does not tell them they could not pray or prophesy. They were obviously speaking within the church service. So how do we deal with that? How do we take Paul saying, or at least permitting them to pray and prophesy, as long as it was done properly in one chapter, and here he says, let them not speak. Well, what's the context? What kind of speaking does Paul mention immediately before this verse? Remember, he says that when they prophesy, when these individuals prophesy, there is supposed to be an evaluation that takes place, a discussion where they evaluate what's being taught. So as you can imagine, we're in a church service, prophets stand up, they give a prophecy, the other prophets 
begin to discuss that. You have teachers and apostles and others there too, and they're evaluating that, and they're using that as a teaching time within that session, within that time, right? Now notice what else Paul does. He says, but they're to subject themselves, as the law also says. Now there's no single passage in the law that says women are to subject themselves. However, the overarching principle found within the law is that women are to be submissive to their husbands and submissive to leadership. That's the overarching principle, and that's what Paul says according to the law. And so, what does he go on and say next? If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. So the speaking that he's talking about probably had to do with women during that teaching time speaking up, engaging in the discussion and the debate, asking questions, and that was a problem. Now you might ask, well, why was that a problem? A couple of reasons. One is, within the, even the Greek culture, women were not nearly as educated as the men. Most women were educated at home in domestic duties. Even among Hebrews, the women were allowed to learn in the synagogues, but most did not. So one issue is that in that culture and society, women were not educated beyond pretty much what takes place in the home. Now, within the Christian church, they're given a lot of liberty. And they come into the church, and Paul tells us in Ephesians, we'll get back there in a second, let women learn. They should be able to learn. But as you can imagine, women asking questions in a culture and a society where that was not permitted and tolerated. In fact, women were not allowed to engage in public discourse and debate with men in public. It was against culture, against society, in part because they were considered uneducated, and for the most part they were when it came to certain things. And so Paul is saying, look, a woman, if she wants to learn, should do it at home. Why? When a woman in the Greek culture spoke out, discussed, and debated in a public setting with men, it was considered a disrespect to her husband. So Paul says, don't do that in the church. Don't disrespect your husband in the church. Don't be disruptive in the church. Go home and ask your husband. A husband is to be the head of the wife, to teach, to instruct. That's filled in the scriptures. That's what we're told in the scriptures. In fact, when you look at male leadership within the scriptures, there's all kinds of burden put on the man to manage his household, to, to honor his wife, to teach and to instruct. He's held accountable. And so Paul simply says that in that structure, in that church, as the prophecy is taking place, as the discussion is taking place, he says, Women shouldn't be permitted to speak at that time. They shouldn't be asking questions, um, dialoguing and discussing and debating within the church setting because it would be considered disruptive. Now, a couple of things that might be happening here. It's not a problem with asking questions. But, you know, even when I was in seminary, there were times where the professor was teaching and guys were trying to ask so many, so many questions that it's just the, the professor can't even get his words out. He finally wanted to say, would you just shut up? I'm trying to learn here. I can't if you keep interrupting, you keep asking questions. And it's not that these people were trying to be disruptive. They, they wanted their questions answered. But there's a right time and a wrong time to ask those questions. And there are times where it's like, look, go to the professor afterwards and ask those questions. And so you've got that dynamic kind of going on here where the women apparently were asking questions during this time and maybe to the point where it was becoming too disruptive. In part because much of it might have been new to them. They were not as educated in the scriptures as the guys were. And so they're asking questions because they want to learn. That's a good thing, but causing disruptions. But on top of that, it was a serious concern in their, in their culture because it, showed a sign, it was a sign of disrespect to the husband and to other men. And so you've got that dynamic going on. And whether we like that or not, there are times where we're supposed to obey, if you will, culture and standards within our culture because we're trying to represent Christ-like behavior. You know, we may not like paying taxes, but Jesus said, give the taxes to Caesar. Okay? Why? We should be good citizens. We talked a little bit about, um, when the, uh, this was a couple weeks ago, when the Jews were taken off into exile. And God said, pray for them. <laughs> pray that things go well for them. Why? Because if it goes well for them, it goes well for you. And so there's an expectation that we behave properly according to culture as well. Which means 
If we know something is a turnoff to our culture and society, we should be very careful. And so that was part of what was happening here. You can mark this down if you want to, but Peter kind of addresses something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 thereabouts, um, where he really talks about women having a submissive nature towards their husbands, and he basically references back to Sarah and says, this is the way that it is. This is how women of the Old Testament would honor their husbands, would behave in a way that didn't disrespect them. And that was important. And So that's really what Paul is addressing here. So he basically says, if women desire to learn something, that they should ask their husband at home, go ahead and learn, but do it in an appropriate way that demonstrates respect for their husbands, respect for male authority within the church, don't disrupt the church service. But again, I think we have to be very careful in saying they weren't allowed to speak at all because again, what Paul says about women praying and prophesying. It's a little bit challenging here to know if women could prophesy, what, you know, were they allowed to prophesy you know, how often? Well, I think when Paul says that let two or three prophets prophesy, women were probably permitted to do that, which, which is an interesting dynamic, meaning because they were speaking on behalf of God, likely Paul's instruction here is they could speak the prophecy, but then when it came time to d- discuss and to debate and to evaluate that, they were to remain more submissive and quiet and let the male prophets and the teachers and the apostles be the primary lead on that because they were the ones that were the authority figures within the church if that makes sense. And so I believe that's probably the dynamic. And again, it's challenging because Paul's not giving everything to us in black and white. But I think when you put the pieces together, that's what we actually see. Now, with that in mind, I think it gives us a good idea now of what was happening when we go back to the book of Ephesians. So turn back, in, turn back to, I don't know, the book of Ephesians, the book of um, 1 Timothy but at the Ephesian church. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. While that's all Paul says, now we can superimpose 1 Corinthians 14 on that, can't we? And so Paul's instruction here is probably the very same thing in addition now to what Paul does in the very next work, so the very next verse. The first instruction was women should learn in quietness and submissiveness, but they should be allowed to learn. That's a good thing. In Paul's culture, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. But yet, Paul, in some respects, goes above and beyond their culture and saying, let a woman learn. Another, some of your Bible translations may translate that as, let a woman learn. And it's partly because Paul was saying it's a good thing. Normally, women weren't expected to learn. And yet, Paul kind of goes above and beyond and says, let them learn, but do it quietly and in submissiveness. It's a good thing. So that's the first instruction. The second instruction Paul gives is found in verse 12. Let's read that. But I do not allow woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Let's read that again. But I do not allow woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Notice the verse begins with the word but, which means it's in contrast. In other words, they should be able to learn, they should be able to to hear the word proclaimed, but Paul sets a limit to now what they can do when he says, I don't permit them to teach or exercise authority. Now some would say, see, this is Paul saying this, which means that it was only Paul's opinion. Paul's writing scripture. The fact that it says, I don't permit, means the Lord doesn't permit. Plain and simple. Unless Paul were to specifically say, this is my opinion, which he does elsewhere. He says, it's I, not the Lord who says this. Paul gave his opinion about something. But here, he's simply saying, I don't permit. He didn't permit it in Corinth. He didn't permit it here in Ephesus. We need to understand that as the Lord doesn't permit. I wouldn't get hung up on Paul saying, I don't permit. Paul is speaking on behalf of the Lord here, writing scripture. To be clear now, the Bible does not prohibit women from teaching. I'm going to rattle off a couple of things here. I'll give you some verses. i got six pages of notes, so I'm going to cite these more than read them to you. Otherwise, we'll be here all afternoon. I don't need that extra hour. The Old Testament charges parents, which includes mothers, to teach their children. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You see that with the the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. In fact, how many of you know that um, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman... If you look at, the, look at what the author says there, it's King Lemuel. But it's what he learned from his mother. 
And so what he says about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 isn't his words, it's what his mother taught him. Okay? Scriptures also tell us that um, women ought to be able to teach children. Um, We actually get that in the book of Titus where the older women are told to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to be good at what they do. And so clearly women are allowed to teach children. They're allowed to teach other women. Um, Pretty clear. What Paul, however, is describing here, when he says he wouldn't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, teach and have authority are both regulated by the phrase over a man. So another way to translate it would be they are not allowed to teach over a man nor have authority over a man. They go together. Well, that makes sense. Teaching and authority in the context of the church go hand in hand. Whether we like it or not, when a pastor stands up and preaches from the Word of God, there's a certain amount of authority that goes with that. They go hand in hand. And so what Paul is describing there, this idea of women teaching and having authority over men, he's really describing the role of elder, pastor, and teacher. Now what's interesting about that is you get into chapter 3, Dustin's going to get into this in the next two weeks, um, those roles of pastor, teacher, elder are clearly restricted to men. Why? Because it's not just teaching, it's teaching with authority and having authority. It's leadership within the church. And so what Paul is really doing here when he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he's really looking at that primary teaching function, leadership function, authority function within the body of Christ. And he says that's where the limits are. So it's really essentially the role of pastor, elders, and teachers that he's got in mind here. And apparently, some at Ephesus, some of the women, were taking on that responsibility and that role, which was a problem. So Paul says, they should be able to learn, but do it in a submissive nature. They should not be exercising teaching or authority over men within the church. That's where the limits are. And again, you look at chapter 3, you look at Titus chapter 1, when Paul describes the role of elder or pastor, He clearly limits that to men. But then when he goes to talk about deacons, he allows for women. At least, I think that's what Dustin's going to do with it next week. So really that's what we're talking about here. It brings up the question then is whether or not it's ever appropriate for a woman to teach a man. What do you think? Um, What's that? Because again, teaching and authority, Paul has put those two together. Okay, We've got an example in Acts chapter 18. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but remember Priscilla and Achilla? And what did they do? Not what did um, Achilla do. But Priscilla and Achilla are attributed with teaching Apollos the gospel more clearly. So clearly Priscilla was involved with some form of teaching with Apollos, communicating God's truth. We also know Priscilla and Achilla in two places. One was in Ephesus, I don't remember, it was the other one, Rome, I believe, where they ran a house church out of their house. Now, it doesn't mean that she was pastor or co-pastor. It simply means that um, some have used that as an argument. Say, she must have been a pastor. Well, it never identifies them as pastor or wife. It just, husband and wife, yes, but it just simply says they hosted a church. But we have to at least deal with the issue of Priscilla having some teaching capacity with Apollos. Well, think about that for a moment. It wasn't necessarily in the construct of the local church. They met Apollos. Paul was still in the process of planting a church. They weren't an elder couple. They didn't have any authority over Apollos. They simply shared the gospel with them more accurately. There's no prohibition against that in the scripture. I've got another good example for you. Um, When I was in seminary, um, we brought in a, a woman speaker. She was a Hebrew expert. Her name was Susan Foe, Professor Susan Foe. Um, I'm going to share something that she had um, instructed us on from uh, Genesis chapter 3. Did some great work on the relationship between men and women and interpreting properly Genesis chapter 3. And uh, so the seminary brought her in. Was that inappropriate? The fact that she was brought in and taught some of the students 
some very important things regarding how to interpret the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 3. Was that inappropriate? Some would say, yes, she's a woman teaching over men. The thing is, there's no authority there. She had no authority over me. I wasn't even in the local church. She was a professor. And I was still under the authority of my professor who brought her in to teach. I don't believe there's a problem with that. Because the Bible does not say that that's never appropriate. But what it does say is that when you have teaching with authority and it's exercised over men, that is inappropriate, especially in the context of the body of Christ within the local church primarily. I would argue probably the same thing. When you have um, famous female teachers, you know, get your Beth Moore and, and Joyce Meyer and some of the others who... Um, on a regular basis, teach men. Now, is that a problem that they're sharing something about the Word of God to men? Or is the problem that many men submit themselves to her teaching and see her as their mentor? Now we sort of cross that magic line sometimes because it's really about the discipleship model. Who's to be the primary authority over men when it comes to teaching, mentoring, discipling? It's supposed to be men. That's the way God designed it. And so when you have somebody like a K. Arthur who says, look, I'm not going to pastor men. Now, if they want to use my Bible study method to learn, that's okay. But I'm not going to pastor men. That's one thing. But when you have somebody like a Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore who want to pastor men and see no problem with it, now we've got a problem. Because the scriptures... Don't permit that. It's not the way God designed it. And so, when we look at this second charge from Paul, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, he means exactly that. They should not be teaching in a way that exercises authority over men. They should not be elders, pastors, teachers within the local church, where their primary job is to teach and instruct and mentor and disciple the local body. Now, that leads us to why Paul gives this instruction. Was it purely a cultural thing? You know, Do we have to obey it? Does it apply to us today? Paul provides three statements of support to help us to see why he believes this. The first one he makes is in verse 13. Look at that. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That's not a cultural thing, is it? It goes back to the creation order that Adam was created before Eve. Now, it's interesting. If you go back and look at that story, it wasn't until after God had done a number of things with Adam. He creates Adam. He gives Adam the first commands. He then has Adam name the animals. And it's not until after that that he finally creates Eve. And then he basically takes Eve, places her alongside Adam, and refers to her as a helpmate to Adam. In fact, there's some neat imagery when you think about what God does in the creation story. It's hard to see sometimes unless you break it down, but think about this. Adam was taken from the ground, and Adam's name is actually ground. It's named after the ground. Adam was created from the ground. He's named after the ground. God then creates a garden, places him in the garden, and tells him to till the ground. And then after the curse, he's cursed in relationship to the ground and told, you've got to go work the ground and sweat. It's going to bring up thorns and thistles. That's not just coincidental. That's very deliberate by God. Because when he creates Eve, what does he do? He takes Eve... Out of Adam, not out of the ground. Then he takes Eve, brings her to Adam, places her alongside Adam, and says, you're a helpmate to Adam. Plus, he named woman after Adam. Adam is Adam. Woman is Adamah. So he creates Eve from Adam, names her after Adam, places her alongside, alongside Adam as his helpmate to help Adam. And then when she's cursed... She's cursed in her relationship to Adam. Isn't that interesting? What we learn when we go back to Genesis is that there is a created order and it involves authority and responsibility and God created Adam primarily for the role of head to his wife and his family. He is the primary authority figure over creation, but he is also the primary responsibility. Do you notice when it comes to, it comes to sin and the curse... Who does God talk to? Talks to Adam. It's not that he doesn't talk to Eve, but he goes right to Adam. You know? And, and, and that's where the responsibility lies. And so 
When Paul says that Adam was created first, he's using that as his evidence of this is why women within the church shouldn't teach or have authority over men because God didn't design it that way. God designed that men would be the primary authority figure, not just in creation, but in the family and in the church. That alone ought to settle the debate for us. But Paul decides to provide two other pieces of evidence or support for why women shouldn't teach or have authority over men. Look at what the second statement is. Let me, let me, ba- let me back up this for a second. If we look at the scriptures, we also see that pattern elsewhere. Think about this. When you go through the Old Testament, almost all of Israel's leaders are men. The patriarchs are all men. There are the rare occasions when you get into Judges, we have Deborah. That's, that's an outlier. Okay? God used her in a very specific way. But overwhelmingly, God has chosen throughout his redemptive plan to use men to accomplish his redemptive plan all the way out through him. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You've got Adam initially. You've got um, Moses. You've got almost all, almost all of the major prophets. All the major prophets are men. All the minor prophets are men. It doesn't mean that women didn't prophesy. We do see some of that in the scriptures. We see that in the New Testament. But overwhelmingly, God has relied on male leadership throughout all of his history. It's his choice. We didn't, we didn't grow into that. We didn't choose that. That's the way God designed it. Even Jesus and his disciples. Do you ever wonder why Jesus chose all men? Because that's God's plan. God built upon the apostles. That became the foundation of the church. Male leadership. That's the way God designed it. Now, women play a huge role. Jesus first appeared after his resurrection to what? Females first. Okay? It's not derogatory. It's just that God established male leadership to be his model. We even find that in the Godhead. God is not a woman. Now, some would say, well, he's sexless. Well, of course, but yet he's referred to as God the Father, and God the Son and the Holy Spirit is never referred to, ultimately, as Feminine, a feminine word is used here and there, but for other purposes. But the Godhead is portrayed as being masculine. And there's a reason for that. And so that's the first piece that Paul gives. Now the second thing that Paul does here, the second statement of support that he makes for this, is that the Ephesian, Ephesian women's desire to teach and have authority over men was ultimately the result of deception. Now think about this for a minute. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now there's some things going on here. Some some interpret this verse here to mean that um, women shouldn't teach or have authority over men because they're more easily deceived. They don't have quite the intellectual ability that men do. Um, I don't think that you can support that. I, I think anybody that claims that women are not intellectual or not as smart as men, I think can't follow the evidence. The scriptures don't necessarily lay that out, that women are somehow intellectually inferior to men. But Paul does say that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. Now, what's interesting about this is that Satan didn't approach Adam. Didn't even try to deceive Adam. Was it because Adam was somehow smarter? Scriptures don't say that. I think that'd be a big jump for us. What the scriptures do tell us is that he attacked Eve. He deceived Eve. It's interesting when you um, think about this. If Paul's thought here was that the reason women shouldn't teach men was because the women are so much more easily deceived. Adam wasn't, but Eve was, and so women shouldn't be able to teach because they're more easily deceived. Then why wouldn't Paul prohibit women from teaching at all? Is it okay that they deceive the young children and the other women? Just not men? That's bad. Paul's concern wasn't, I don't think that women are more easily deceived, but rather, women weren't designed for that, and Satan knew that. And so Satan went after Eve. He didn't go after the head. Think about in a military battle. You never go after the strongest part of your enemy's defenses. You look for what I'm going to call weak spots in the defense. Those are not as fortified. God did not design Eve to be out there protecting the family, protecting creation, protecting the church. He designed her as a helpmate to come alongside so that he could do that. And Satan knew that. 
And what happened is, when he attacked Eve, she sinned. And what, did, what happened then? Adam, you sir, Adam basically gave up his responsibility and authority when Eve said, here, you've got to try this. And he went, okay. He sinned with his, his eyes wide open. Okay? Eve was certainly deceived, but I don't think it's because she's more deceptible. What the scriptures do tell us is that she is the weaker vessel. She's the weaker vessel. In fact, that's probably more what's in mind here. But she wasn't designed for that. You know, it's interesting. You look at a military, you've got some that are designed for infantry, some that are designed... You've got all different roles. You certainly would not take somebody who was trained as a medic and put them on the front lines, would you? That's not what he was designed for, trained for. You want your guys that are designed to use weaponry to be on the front lines. And so that's very similar. And so I think we have to be careful in saying here that what Paul's concerned about is women are just so much easier, easier to deceive, therefore they shouldn't be teaching. Because again, there's not enough evidence for that. But again, we're at, we are told in the scripture that they are the weaker vessel. Peter makes that very clear. You can get into debates as to exactly what that means, but they're designed differently. You know, it's interesting because deception is not generally a result of intellectual ability. Deception is so much easier when you attack things like emotions or other things. It isn't about intellectual ability. Some of the smartest people, we talked about this last night, some of these brilliant people that are Mormons, and you look at it and you go, that is just nuts. Because their theology is a mess. And yet, extremely intelligent people can be deceived through all forms of other means. Oftentimes, Satan doesn't attack us in our intellect. He attacks other things. Brings doubt, brings fear, brings anger, brings anxiety, does all kinds of other things. And there is something about the woman being the weaker vessel. Maybe because she's more tender. Maybe because she's more willing to listen sometimes. Maybe because she might be more willing to be persuaded by good argument. I don't know what it is, but it isn't an intellectual thing as much as it is the fact that she is a weaker vessel, the scriptures tell us. She is to be protected, cared for, watched over. That's not a bad thing, women. Not a bad thing at all. In fact, I love the fact, and and people oftentimes miss this, you know, Adam, when God, I think the reason God waited between creating Adam and Eve was he wanted to teach Adam something. You know, he had Adam name all the animals. And it's not until he gets done, he's like, okay, Adam, take a look. There's nobody here that can help you. Nobody. You need somebody like you that can come alongside you because you need somebody to do that. Adam couldn't accomplish what God commanded him to accomplish without the woman being there right along his side. It's the same thing in our families. A husband cannot ultimately do what he is supposed to do without a good helpmate by his side. Plain and simple. When you look at Ephesians, or I'm sorry, um, Proverbs chapter 31, I mean, it's really clear all the stuff that she does. It says that her husband is known in the gates. Why? Because of her. I love it when I hear a pastor or somebody get up that says that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my wife. Plain and simple, you know? And so when Paul here references the fact that it was Adam who was deceived, I'm sorry, Adam who was not deceived, but a woman who was deceived, he's getting at that very thing. Satan knew who to go after. Women weren't designed for that. And I think that when women take on that role of pastor or elder, it puts them in a very vulnerable spot with the enemy. Because he knows. I was listening to a woman this morning, actually. I'll share some additional stuff here in a second. But she was talking about how almost every successful culture and nation in history has been built on male leadership. Partly because men take risks in the things that they do. And, so, and she wasn't a Christian. She was just referencing, historically, this is what we see. And it was in the context of something I'll share here in a minute. But she was very right. She could see it as an unsaved person. She could see that that is God's design. Now, again, it doesn't mean women are stupid, that they're not strong. Heck, we got Deborah. You know, led an army. Those things can happen. God can do that. Okay? But there's one more thing here. Paul, notice that he says, at the end of verse 14... That woman, Eve essentially, fell into transgression. Now what's interesting about that is the tense that Paul uses. He uses the perfect tense. And what the perfect, we've heard this before, it's it's a fairly rare tense, if you will, in the scriptures. But the perfect tense, we use it sometimes in English, um, refers to something that happened in the past, but the effects continue to this day and into the future. Now here's what's important about that. 
if you look at it, the way that this is translated is it says, fell into transgression. Another way to render that is, have come into transgression. I believe that what Paul is doing there is he's referencing something from back in Genesis chapter 3. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I mentioned Susan Foe, the Hebrew expert that came and spoke to us at seminary. This is partly her work. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Notice that the curse, if you will, with woman is this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. The words that are used here in this passage aren't about just having some pain when you give a baby. It's, the words that are used are a reference to all of child rearing. From the birth to the raising, that's all going to be difficult. The word for pain here is, is better translated as toil, difficulty, hardship. So basically what the Lord says is, having babies, raising babies, raising kids is going to be hard work. Toil. It's the same word that's used of Adam toiling in the garden, working the ground. It is going to be hard work. It's not just going to be painful. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be disappointing. It's going to be frustrating. That's the curse. But notice what he says then. In pain you will bring forth children. That's the, word. That's the idea of toil, hardship. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So what does that mean? Oftentimes that is translated as, well, even though the relationship is going to be hard, she's still going to desire her husband. Some say it's desire sexually. Some say it's desire emotionally. But, you know... It's all going to be good because even though she's going to have pain and child rearing, she's still going to desire her husband. What Susan Foe proposed is that that word for desire there means to actually desire to conquer or have authority over. And the reason for that is that word is only used three times in the whole entire Old Testament. It's used here. It's used talking about Cain, sin wanting to master Cain, have authority over Cain. Sin's desire is to have you, God says, same word, but you must master it. Then it's used in the Song of Solomon, of Solomon desiring to master or have authority over the woman that he's talking about in Song of Solomon. So the only two other occurrences of this word in the Bible refer to having mastery over or authority over somebody. Put that back into the context of Genesis chapter 13, or Genesis chapter 3. That because of this child, the issues with child rearing and all that, another way to translate this is, your desire will be to master your husband, or your desire will be to have authority over your husband. A direct violation of God's created order. It's still sin. It's not a blessing. Oh, you'll still desire your husband. It's rather no. The tendency for women will be to want to be the ones in authority. They'll want to master their husbands. Now you may say, well, I don't necessarily feel like that. Well, you're saved. It's just the bottom line. The New American or the New English translation actually translates it as, "You will want to control your husband." They get it right. I think Susan Foe was correct in her interpretation of this. In fact, that's much more generally now the, the accepted understanding of this. That what God was warning Eve about was, "You will want to control your husband. You will want to rebel against his leadership and his authority." And his response, "He'll want to rule over you." Scriptures never intended that man rule over woman. They were to rule over creation as husband and wife. But the response will be, man will want to master the woman. And so, the second statement really has to do with women in the church wanting that role of authority. Wanting that role over their husbands. When you think about historically what's happened with the feminist movement and other things, isn't that very similar not wanting to be content to be a helpmate to a husband, not wanting to submit to male leadership or authority. It's a rebellion against that. That's what feminism is. In fact, two things happened this morning. Um, actually, I'll save this for the end. It'll be a good closing thing. I'm running a little bit late here, but we want to finish this up. The third statement that Paul makes is found in verse 15. I've got to go back to First Timothy here. He says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, what does that mean? Women will be preserved through the bearing of children. That word for preserved is the word for saved. Every time you see that word, you can't think eternal salvation. It's used saved, delivered, rescued, provided. So, what is Paul referring to here? He says, when a woman... Or women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. The third statement refers to this idea that women will be saved or preserved from the very thing he just talked about, the sin of Eve. 
The desire to be the one in authority, the desire to master the male, the desire to be the one who teaches and has authority over the church. Paul says women are going to be saved from that temptation, that sin, the same sin of Eve, by what? Focusing on what they were designed and created for, the bearing of children. Now, does this mean every woman has to have babies? No, Paul is speaking generally. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting about this. This morning, and God is interesting in this, I flip on Fox News for just 10 minutes, and they happen to have a woman on there who's been a researcher for years on what's happening in our universities. And she talked about the feminization of our universities today. More and more universities are being led by women. And she talked about the, um, what's been happening in a lot of these universities. The growing hatred of men on campus, men being demonized on campus, so much so that there are fewer men today that are going to college because they don't want to go to college because of what's happening. And she said, and now what's happening are the women are complaining because there's no men on campus. And so she's written about the feminization of the university system. And in her mind, she's not saved, in her mind, this has been a very bad thing because with women taking on that role, and she she wasn't demeaning women in roles of authority at universities, but what she's saying is much of it's been driven by the feminist movement, women wanting to take over the universities and in doing so have demonized male leadership, masculinity of men, And now the women are paying the price because they're all starting to complain at these universities that where are all the men? Why aren't the men going to school now? And now they're upset because the men have been driven out. Now, I don't know how much truth there is to all that, but it was just interesting, her perspective, because she talked about this hatred of male leadership and how that's now being fomented on the university campuses and how it's actually hurt enrollment and some other things and hurt attitudes and affections with the the women. Interesting thought. Now, the second thing I thought was interesting was I pulled out my phone, happened to come across an actual article on a brand new survey and a study that was just released in the last week that had to do with what happened with COVID with remote work. And I thought this was interesting. They were talked about specifically women. But they said because of the whole um, COVID thing where people were sent home to work, they've seen this interesting trend. They've looked at this all over the world. They studied over 3,000 women who were now working from home. They came from the workplace and they went back home. And what they found is that um, they were much more satisfied being mothers and being at home and an increase in their desire to have children. Isn't that interesting? Now, the article wasn't about women should just go home. It was rather, it's interesting how women being put in an environment where they're out competing in the world, and having to share responsibilities with the husband at home, etc., or whatever, or still come home and do it all themselves, had a negative impact on their desire to have children and to be mothers. And what they found was that in going home and now spending more time at home, they had more time for their families, and it began to increase their desire to be a mother and to have more children. But they also found that even with unmarried women... The desire to marry and have children after being at home, working from home, also increased. Why? It's the way God designed the male-female relationships. Now, again, a secular study. I don't know what more it proves. It isn't about women having to stay home, not work. That's not, that, that's not the point. It's just an example of the way God designed men and women. And we can't ignore that. And so Paul, as he looks at these things... All of that comes into play with what Paul is saying here. So what do we have with this? What's our, what's our takeaways for all of this? One of the takeaways is, I think, a cultural thing. When Paul says that women shouldn't speak up in church, shouldn't ask questions in church, should only ask their husbands at home, I believe it's a cultural thing. I think there's enough evidence to support that. It doesn't mean that women shouldn't speak in church, shouldn't ask questions, Okay? I think, again, Paul is dealing primarily with a cultural issue there. Now, what about the second thing? What about teaching or having authority over men? Is that a cultural thing? No, because the three examples Paul gives have nothing to do with culture. So while one issue does, the other one does not. We don't cover our heads here, women. Okay? So to expect you to come in and cover your head, it's not a cultural thing. If you were to speak up in church... It's not an offense. It doesn't disrespect your husband. 
Now, if you become really disruptive, I would argue, well, same thing with a guy, you know. So we have to be really care- we have to be really careful. We can't use this passage to say that women should shut up and not have anything to say and should only go home and make babies. We, we can't do that. It's not what it's about. It's really about, in one respect, the cultural thing, paying attention and being being appropriate with cultural nuances and cultural things. To be very careful with that, be respectful of that. But the second part is that there are rules within the church in terms of who God wants to lead, guide, direct, teach, and have authority over the body as a whole. And that is specifically reserved for men. He designed men to be leaders in that respect, to be the primary responsibility figures and authority figures. He designed women to come alongside men as helpmates. And those roles need to be maintained, especially within the church, which means here at Renew, we will not permit a woman to be a primary teacher. We will not allow a woman to be an elder or authority figure over the church. But we'll recognize that God might use you, and we have no issues with you speaking up. We have no issues with you sharing what you've learned from God's word or asking questions. That is, if anything, Paul would probably be here applauding that. Let a woman learn, he says. And so that would be a good thing. So, I don't think it's as controversial as some. I think that um, this lays out exactly what Paul was addressing. So, if you have any questions, obviously you can ask, can share, and we'll go from there.